Welcome to the DEI Lab Podcast, where we explore how to develop your leadership and capacity to advance DEI in your organization. And on this show, we use our expanded definition of DEI, DEI Lab, for diversity, equity, inclusion, liberation, anti-racism, belonging, and being as in well-being. I'm your host, Rory Geller-Muhammad. I'm an executive DEI coach and licensed therapist. I specialize in helping white leaders navigate issues of race and culture at work so you can advance DEI and anti-racism work in your organization. If you ever worry about saying or doing something that could unintentionally cause harm or feel frustrated with the slow pace of change, you are in the right place. As a white person, I started my DEI lab leadership journey over 20 years ago and wished I had white mentors in my life to show me the way. Together, we're going to change that. Changemakers and future mentors, let's get started. Welcome everyone to the show. I am super excited to have Evelyn Al-Sultani on the show to talk about Muslim inclusion in corporate spaces and even Hollywood. Evelyn Al-Sultani is a leading expert on the history of representations of Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. media. She is the author of Broken, the Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, and Arabs and Muslims in the Media, Race and Representation After 9-11. She is an associate professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of South Carolina's, sorry, South California's and Dornsife College. She has served as an educator and consultant for Hollywood Studios and co-authored Criteria, the, and actually the Obidi Al-Sultani test, and I'm gonna have to, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, to help Hollywood improve representation of Muslims. Professor Al-Sultani has published op-eds in The Hollywood Reporter, The Washington Post, and Newsweek, and has a podcast, Muslims as Seen on TV. So I am super excited. Thank you, Evelyn, for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Rory. I'm an admirer of the work that you do. Thank you, and the same to you. <laughs> so I would love if you could just tell us a little bit more, tell us about you, your work, and how diversity, equity, inclusion shows up. Yes, so I was born and raised in New York City. And my dad was an Iraqi Muslim immigrant. He came to the US in the 1960s. And my mom was a Cuban Catholic immigrant who came from Cuba in uh, the early 1960s after the Cuban revolution. My mom passed away when I was little and my stepmom raised me and she is from Colombia, Catholic, came to the US in the early 1970s. So I, I grew up in environment in New York surrounded by immigrants. And I think it really shaped me and the kind of work that I do today as a child, just witnessing the kinds of questions my parents got on a regular basis. Where are you from? Every day of our lives, where are you from? Where are you from? Oftentimes, it, just an innocent kind of question, mm -hmm. informative, trying to connect. Other times, it seemed a little bit suspicious. And uh, I think when I was eight, I started noticing that sometimes my parents would lie about where they were from. Mm -hmm. So my dad would say he was from Turkey. I did not understand at the time why. Mm -hmm. And my stepmom would say she was from Spain. And I was very puzzled by it. But later on, as I got older, I noticed that when they did say Iraq and Colombia, the questions would turn to topics about terrorism, oppressed women, drug dealing, weird assumptions about how do you make your money right. and so I started to understand that the where are you from question was very loaded yeah and um I just I watched them deal with a lot of 
stereotypes and challenges as I was a child. So that definitely shaped me. Yeah, for sure. When I got to college, uh, I had the experience that many people have in college where you come to a new kind of awareness about yourself and your identity. I took women's studies classes. I took um, ethnic studies classes. And at the time in the 1990s, if you wanted to learn about Arabs or Muslims, you had to either go to Middle East studies or religious studies. You couldn't go to American studies. If you went to women's studies, you'd learn about Middle Eastern women in the Middle East. You wouldn't learn about it here. Right. And so from a young age, I just had a drive to understand what is this experience with discrimination and stereotyping that Arabs and Muslims are facing? It's not part of a, definitely not part of a national conversation, but right. it's not even part of a U.S. ethnic studies niche conversation. Right. And so that motivated me. So when, when I went to grad school, my proposal was to bring Arabs and Muslims into a conversation about racism in the U.S. That was in the, that was in 1999. Wow. And I was accepted to a PhD program. Uh, but when I got in, my advisor said, you know what, you're not going to get a job. If you do Arabs or Muslims, you have to do Middle East studies or religious studies. You don't do it in American studies. It was an ethnic studies, American studies program. But then 9-11 happened and all of that changed. And over time, I've witnessed over the last 20 years um, a greater interest and inclusion of Muslims. Mm -hmm. And also during that time, I've been part of a collective of scholars and I have colleagues who are interested in the same kind of work. Right. Uh, so my first job at the University of Michigan involved creating an Arab and Muslim American studies program in their ethnic studies uh, department. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And then um, I also co-created um, an Islamophobia working group at Michigan where we were trying to help the administration meet the needs of Arab and Muslim students on campus and to think about them in the context of the diversity work they were doing. That's awesome. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you for sharing, right? Just that, you know, I think that personal connection, right, of how we come into this work sometimes or what that looks like and how that shows up and how much our experiences really impact, you know, the way these things, what happens, right? And the way we come to this work. Yeah, so thank you for sharing. for you, right? Yes, yes, right. <laughs> I know some listeners already know. So yes, yeah, the same, right? When you come and have family experiences or you come family from different backgrounds, multiracial families, all of that, and right, the mixed type, different um, ethnicities, right? The merging and everything. So like, I think there's like this additional lens that some of us have at right a younger age and then how we use that. So thank you. Um, the next question. So your new book, Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion. Can you tell us about it? Yes, yeah, so Broken looks at the process through which Muslims have become included in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And even though Islamophobia is an old problem, some would say since the beginning of Islam in the seventh century, okay. uh, it's only become recognized as a social and political problem in the U.S. in the last decade, maybe decade and a half, around 2010, we started using this language of Islamophobia. And even though after 9-11, there was so much attention yeah. on Muslims as terrorists, we, we didn't actually use the language of Islamophobia until around 2010. And since 2010, the public, and it is very divided, of course, mm -hmm. uh, some people, you know, say there's no such thing mm -hmm. as Islamophobia. Others who want to acknowledge it have come to acknowledge it since 2010 through a series of hate crimes. There have been hate crimes for a long time, but yeah. the media started actually covering some of these hate crimes. Um, Donald Trump's announcement of a Muslim ban 
was really a, a turning point where people really started paying attention. But there were a series of events from 2010 to the present uh, that caught people's attention and uh, created an opening to start talking about Muslims in the context of diversity. Right. I should also say that it's only since around 2010, 2015 that we're using the language of DEI in the way yes. that we are today. Uh, so there's this um, connection that's happening between the language of DEI, the recognition of Muslims. And so in the book, my main argument is that Muslims came to be included in diversity through what I call crisis diversity. Mm -hmm. And this is a process where something happens. Let's say there's a hate crime. There's a hate crime in uh, North Carolina and three uh, Muslim students were murdered by their neighbor. And it became headline news. Other hate crimes don't make the news and we right. never hear about them, but this one actually made headline news. And so we have this issue, people become concerned and it galvanizes people. So it right. can lead to universities making statements, creating initiatives to be more inclusive of Muslim students, trying to figure out how to counteract the obvious um, illustration of Islamophobia through that act. And right. so there are statements, corporations, universities make statements, issue initiatives, and then the crisis moment passes and we don't really think about it until the next crisis. And so I've been looking at, and I, I've experienced that in my own work where I'm, you know, I'm doing my research and doing my teaching, no one really cares, I'm in my little bubble. Right. And then all of a sudden something happens and there are requests to do workshops and educate and write and Right. All of a sudden, this work that you've been doing for so long is of interest, and then you're exhausted yeah. doing all the work, and then the moment passes. I was actually wondering how that, if you've, if you've experienced that in your own work, that there are these moments where things happen and people want yeah. demand for what you do, and then other moments where it seems like people don't really care. Yeah, I think, right, there's definitely that uptick when those crisis moments, I agree, right, happen, and then it's kind of how do we keep that momentum, and how do people recognize that this is work, that we need to sustain it. And I, I think definitely even just like with practically like DI practitioners in general, right, this exhaustion when like all of that happened, like you're describing, and then how, what would it like to imagine, like, what would it look like if people were constantly or consistently invested in this work and we're always doing it. And so, I mean, you know, how, we're working to prevent obviously these crisis moments, but how, what would it look like if we're already prepared for, you know, so that those things don't happen, but when they do, right, that it's like, you're not, it's not this all of a sudden, hurry up, hurry up, let's get it all together as fast as we can, figure it out, address it, and okay, now check it off the box, right? Exactly, yes. So yeah. So yeah, in so the book, I say that the crisis moments, they are opportunities to educate right. people, to get some work done on these issues, uh, but uh, oftentimes they don't go far enough because we're only responding to the crisis, and the crisis yeah. is illustrating a very long-standing issue. Yeah. So it has its, its pros and cons, and it's debatable how much actual progress and get, gets done through those crisis moments. Yeah, no, I love that your book really points that out as opposed to it just being like to really focus and make that sort of an important that this is something that people need to recognize as opposed to it's like just letting it be. So thank you like that it highlights that is awesome. Why, and I don't know if you kind of addressed this already, but why did you decide to write the book? So I was surprised to see Islamophobia go mainstream. Yeah. So from the days of, you know, and it wasn't, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't that we weren't talking about 
Muslims, it, we, we didn't really talk about racism. It was, wasn't part of the national conversation like it is today. And then to go through the period in the early 2000s after 9-11 where there was a possibility of talking about Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism in ethnic studies, but not yeah. publicly. And then all of a sudden this moment, 2010s, 2015, it's on, on the agenda and it's yeah. being discussed and Muslims are becoming more visible in society and in conversations about inclusion. So I was curious about what was happening and started tracking that process to try to understand it. Most of my, you know, it's funny when you write a book and then at the end you're an expert on it, but you start because you don't under, I didn't understand the phenomenon and I wanted to. So I started uh, doing a lot of research and trying to track and understand how Muslims were being included and what the implications were, both the benefits and the drawbacks. Yeah. You know, I think it made, when you were talking, it made me think of um, that moment, right, with, with all the stuff, that nonsense that, right, that Trump was doing and all and how scary, like right before the, the election time with what, like, it, I had actually written, had written an article, like, about the, I had, my son was very young at the time. And I just remember being like, the impact this is, what is, impact is this going to have, like, on my baby? And what is it, this idea of, like, it made me think of right this connection to like the Holocaust, right? Where people had to like register and Jews were like having to um right, like who, who is Jewish and who was not where this was there gonna be like a Muslim registry? And I was like, this is like how crazy. And it felt really scary as a new mom raising a child that is both Muslim and Jewish and is Muslim, right? And having like a family. And so just going through that experience, I just I didn't. It wasn't said recently I was going back up like articles and it came up and I was like, oh my God, it just brought back like how scared I was at that time. Yes, I remember it too. I, for me, from the moment of 9-11 until through Muslim ban, it felt like every week there was something on the news about a Muslim committing an act of violence, being a victim of violence, constant. Right now, it, it, there's been less of that, and I feel like I can breathe a little bit better. The news has focused more on white supremacy, COVID, um, George Floyd, yeah. and uh, but with the Muslim ban, uh, Trump announced it in 2015, his idea. And I do think that as uh, terrible as Trump was for this country, he did galvanize people to try to make change. And mm -hmm. so this conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, um, I think it has advanced in a way it wouldn't have without his provocation, yeah, without his threat. Yeah, I definitely hear that. So we, from your work, right, when we think of what, what this might look like, right, in, in companies and corporate spaces, um, how, how do issues around Muslim inclusion and DEI show up in those spaces? you share a little bit from your experience, what, how you see that, what, that, what your experience is with that? So uh, Muslims have become more visible in corporate spaces, particularly in advertising and marketing. Uh, so for example, Nike created um, a sports hijab for Muslim mm -hmm. athletes, the pro hijab. Uh, I have a graduate student at Michigan, Belkis Ohadi, who's writing about this, the visibility of Muslim women in advertising. And uh, she points out the irony that 
women have been buying hijabs or wearing hijabs their whole life. We didn't need Nike to do this, you know, but <laughs> right, right. it's like now there's a celebration. Wow, Nike's inclusive and Nike's doing this. And but yes, it is a significant uh, moment. I think it's around 2017 that they right. launched that. Uh, Iftahaj Muhammad, the Olympian, was the uh, the model for the sports hijab. And then there was a Barbie doll created, a Muslim Barbie, after the likeness of Iftahaj Muhammad. Yes. Um, CoverGirl had its first uh, Muslim woman wearing a hijab in one of its advertisements. Sports Illustrated had a Muslim model, Halima Aiden, wearing a burkini, fully, you know, covered mm -hmm, on the beach mm -hmm. in, in one of their spreads, but, you know, right. fully covered in her burkini. Uh, so we see more visibility. Uh, corporations are trying to be more inclusive. Yeah. But in my book, there's one chapter that looks at corporations, and it particularly looks at two cases when an organization and a corporation fired public figures for anti-racist, anti-Muslim speech. And so mm -hmm. one example is Juan Williams, who okay. worked for NPR, and in 2010, he was fired because he stated that he gets nervous when he's on an airplane with Muslims, with someone in Muslim garb. And he wow. said that on Fox News and NPR, the leadership at NPR said, you say one thing on Fox News, you say something else on NPR, and they ended up firing him. Yeah. And it led to this huge controversy around free speech and that the left doesn't, can't handle free speech. And then, so in a sense, he was canceled. But then right. Fox News hired him on a multi-million dollar contract. So he was wow. canceled up. He, there was no big consequence mm -hmm. on his career, but it was very controversial. And right. then the second uh, case I look at is Kurt Schilling, who was a MLB baseball player and a commentator on ESPN. And he reposted an anti-Muslim meme on Facebook. And yeah. he was then suspended. And then he reposted an anti-transgender meme. Mm -hmm. And then he was fired. Wow. So it was the first time that I saw someone's fire for saying something anti-Muslim. This and right. it's get, getting uh, press and it's right. So right. it's another way where because right now uh, these speech controversies are one of the ways that we deal with racism in society. Right. Someone says something outrageous, we we are outraged, the company fires the person, are is there are they gonna recover their career or not? So I started looking at what is this process that's taking place where we, uh, and I call it racial purging. We purge this individual for the, from the social order. And it feels like once we've purged them, we're back to this imaginary place, an anti-racist society where we don't allow racism and corporations are heroes. They would never allow racism to continue. They're firing these people. And especially right now with this language of cancel culture, which that language is not around when I was writing, doing the research for this chapter. Yeah. Um, I, I just made me wonder how effective is it? And I'm not saying that individuals shouldn't be held responsible for our speech. Right. But I think it's more complicated than that. And it really lets off institutional kinds of racism. So we don't have to right. look at the corporations and how corporations right. are maintaining unequal structures. We can just fire this person. We can feel good about ourselves. We can applaud the right. corporations for being heroes. Um, and then when we see some people get canceled up and do even better in their careers and other people, their careers really do suffer. And again, I'm not defending them. 
But right, right. I, I, it, it seems that some individuals have to pay the consequence for a history of structural mm-hmm. institutional racism, that they overcompensate right. for this country's um, history. Right, and that's sort of sort of like the easy solution the company finds versus addressing the actually complex issue and looking at using it as sort of a moment of, oh, like what's really going on? Let's look a little deeper. What is What about the rest of the company and what's happening there? Right. But yeah, yep, I hear you with that. Um, and, and so this is also kind of, in addition to sort of that question, I know you touched on this already, we talked about kind of like, what are those root causes, right? It kind of leads. Um, so when you, you think of sort of describing some of the root causes of like, why, why are we seeing um, these issues in this way? I guess I know you've touched like really on that already, but is there anything else you would, you know, you'd add um, around that? So I think with the, when thinking about root causes, it means we should probably define and understand what Islamophobia is. Mm -hmm. And in the 1990s, there was a think tank in England, uh, the Runnymede Trust, and they issued a report that put Islamophobia on the public agenda in England, didn't reach us until the 2010s. And they initially defined Islamophobia as an interpersonal hatred and prejudice and fear of Islam. And a lot of people took issue with the definition and they have since revised it because of all of the criticism. But people said, oh, it makes racism sound individual. It's in the person. What about the structures? Right. Uh, So there have been many debates about how to define it. Do we call it Islamophobia? People say Islamophobia makes it sound individual, fear of Islam, that anti-Muslim racism is a better term because it connects it to the history of racism in the U.S. It makes it more structural. So there's that debate. Uh, But the definition that I um, gravitate towards and use in my work is created by ethnic studies scholars. Uh, Nadine Naber and Janine Rana have one particular definition that I appreciate. And uh, they talk about interpersonal media and state-based targeting of Muslims Mm -hmm. or people who look like they're Muslims, who appear to be Muslims, because sometimes Islamophobia is misdirected towards Sikhs and and other people. Uh, And uh, they highlight that it is based on the assumption that Muslims are a threat to national security and that it has detrimental effects on Muslim life. And right. so the, I think it's useful to think about the interpersonal media targeting mm-hmm. because the media has stereotyped this community for a very, very long time. And now in the age of DEI, we're seeing some shifts, but mm-hmm. the media is, is uh, partially responsible for widespread Islamophobia and then government policies. And there have been many. Um, so we can yeah. go back to the Iran hostage crisis and how it was portrayed, the Arab uh, oil embargo in in 1973 and Arabs merged with Muslims being portrayed as uh, a threat to the US economy. There's a very long history of government policies that far predate 9-11 that made all of the policies after 9-11 that targeted Muslims so easy to pass because of this very long history. So I try to think about those three things together. So then when we're thinking about root causes, uh, there are two things that come up. One is the history of white supremacy, which applies to all communities. It's not just Muslims. It applies to all communities who are not white, 
middle or upper class, cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian. That was the normative identity for so long. Right. And all the communities that are not that have been impacted. So that's right. one, one level. And then the other level is more specific, which is national security policies and how the U.S. has consistently constructed Muslims as a threat, whether an economic threat, a threat to democracy, a threat to women, a threat to national security. Right. We've just been getting these messages about Muslims as a threat. Um, so thinking about the individual media state together and then thinking about what is the impact of the history of white supremacy and then what is the impact of the history of U.S. foreign policies that have produce meaning about Muslims is threatening and how can we address yeah. that? Yes. Well, thank you for that very, very comprehensive answer, right? I know it was a big question and you, I really appreciate, you know, you really dug into it. And so I super appreciate that, right? Really breaking it down, right? The interpersonal, the media, government policies, and then really like the history. And I think that's so important with all of this work. It's so important that we're always looking at the history of how how did this start? Where did this come from? Or why, why are we in the position we are now? Let's make sure we're looking back at history. So thank you for, you know, for really sharing that and digging deep into that. Um, since you were kind of talking a little bit about media and sort of that piece, I'm going to skip to the media question for a minute, because I think it's super cool that you worked in Hollywood, right? I don't think I, having some, knowing someone, I was like, oh, that's super cool, right? <laughs> like, you don't really typically know someone that has a connection to like Hollywood studios or something like that. So it would be really fun, like, well, and it's like the work that you're doing is super important around representation, all of that, and in those spaces. Could you share with us, you know, some of the work you've done and what you see around this issue, what that looks like? Yes. So I've had the opportunity to consult for Amazon Films and NBC Universal and Disney and Marvel and um, Netflix. And I had to sign non-disclosure agreements for all of them, so I can't talk specifics, but I can say that I've had two kinds of experiences. Uh, one is a basic education experience. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm happy to, like, I'm an educator, so I'm happy to go in and do a workshop yeah. and um, educate people on how to, how to think about approaching representations of both Arabs and Muslims, since I study those communities. Uh, sometimes uh, the experiences have been great where I feel like I have this, this expertise that I've developed for 20 years and wow, this is a chance to share this expertise and potentially influence the media in a good direction. Right. Other times it feels like I'm doing 101 work that you could Google. Right. And I don't I don't expect people to know everything about Muslim communities. I don't know everything about Native American communities. Like there's so many communities I don't know a lot about that. Right. But sometimes I'll leave a meeting and I'll think, okay, let's say Native American communities. I don't know a lot about them. If I were doing a project on them, I would Google. I would learn the basics. So sometimes my function is just like the most basic of information. And then the other experience I've had, um, quite a few times is damage control, which is interesting in this conversation about crisis. Yes. But uh, let's say a movie's done. They've wrapped, it's complete. There's no editing that's going to happen, but there's concern that when it's released that Muslims are gonna be upset because they're being stereotyped. So then the movie studio will come to me and say, can you watch the movie and let us know how upset are Muslims gonna be? Are they gonna cancel their subscription? 
can you help us prepare, prepare some talking points, how to respond? And um, those experiences are disconcerting because it's too late at that point. Yeah. I have people I know who have been part of projects, you know, throughout. I have not had yeah. that experience. I'm yeah, usually yeah, yeah. the damage control person. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of my colleagues who has been part of projects throughout is Sue Obedi at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. Mm-hmm. And she and I came up with some uh, criteria for Hollywood to try to help them um, address some shortcomings in their efforts to diversify representations of Muslims. They're trying, and we've noticed a few uh, mistakes that happen along the way. But one of the recommendations we have is to always yeah. have someone on staff from beginning to end of the community that you are representing yes. to avoid the mistakes and not to add someone at the end and not to add someone for five minutes, but to have someone, ideally more than one, who's part of the whole process. Yes. And I feel like that's such good advice in general, right? Yes, for Hollywood, but for any business, right? Any company, any organization, right? Like with that type of thing. And I love it, you know, right? That's some great to have somebody on staff that's from that community that the yes. great that the conversation is ha- like that it's about and from like and like, I love how you're saying too, right? It doesn't have to just be one person. People shouldn't feel like, oh, you can only, let's just find one. You're allowed to have multiple, like, right? You're allowed, it doesn't have to just be that one person. So it's awesome that, you know, you have sort of this method and you created this to support, um, to really pre-support like this, this both prevention. I hear like, you know, coming in and sort of doing this damage control after. And even with that, right? Like, because if they're going to release it anyway, whatever is going to happen, you're still like, I've, to to an extent, right, minimizing some trauma. Mm-hmm. And so, right, even like with that, like that's so, so important. And we just like, just, I don't know, like hopefully that those takeaways, they don't do that same thing again, right? That they at least learn from those mistakes in that That way. is the hope. Right. <laughs> Which I think is such a great lead into our next question for what advice do you have for allies and leadership positions in companies and organizations, right, that want to do better around Muslim inclusion? And I know that's a very broad question. I know it can depend on company, which, what they're in, what field, but, and it could be, it doesn't have to be one piece of advice and whatever you feel like is you could share with that. I think it could be helpful for people to, a starting point for people to hear. I think for people in leadership positions who have who are in this position to really affect change, one of the the proposals I'm trying to make in my book is what if we thought beyond the crisis. So I would want to encourage people to okay, the crisis comes and it's a motivator, it's a galvanizing moment, great. But in devising solutions instead of saying okay, this hate crime happened or this Muslim ban happened and we're gonna Put Muslim women in advertising, which is great if you're in advertising, that's what you do. Right, that's, a right. good, that's a good thing to do. You're not in uh, law enforcement, you're not in policy. So you can't right. really say, okay, we're going to stop wars in Muslim majority countries. But to right. think about, okay, if we're thinking about the white supremacy as the, the root of the problem for many communities, and if we're right. thinking about um, foreign policies as demonizing Muslims, how can we address that? So I was reading that for, you know, George Floyd's murder galvanized the nation as we've never seen before. Right. And I was reading that uh, the number of Black people killed by the police has not decreased. 
but we finally got rid of Aunt Jemima. We finally right. got rid of Uncle Ben. Right. Uh, we finally got rid of the Washington Redskins. Yeah. After decades of people raising the issue, protesting the issue with no response whatsoever. Finally, we got those changes. That's It means something. That is meaningful. Finally, we can say it is unacceptable to portray Black people as servants, and it is yep. unacceptable to use a racial slur for the name of a football team. Exactly. But then, and that is not necessarily the role of corporations to um, reduce the number of Black people being killed by the police. That's up to the police department to figure out. Uh, but the issue is not just the the police killing, but thinking about it in, in a longer history of right. racial violence since the very founding of this country. So I don't have um, a list of solutions for people. I wish I did. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's more of a question of what would it look like if we thought about these momentary issues yeah. of long-term problems and how might that shape our approach? So instead yeah. of saying maybe for advertisers, I'm going to have one Muslim woman in this advertising campaign, like, because that, that it is meaningful. It's not nothing. Yes, yes. But like a long-term vision, like what does it mean to really rectify this history? One image is not going to change it. It's such right. a severe problem that a, a few meaningful gestures are meaningful, but really shifting um, our reality is going to require a long-term commitment and reorienting our understanding of the problem. Yes. And I think, right, like what you're saying, right, it's kind of this idea of expanding sort of our awareness of how we're looking at things and sort of this reflection of reflecting on what's happening, the connection between things and the history. And so I think like everything that you're saying is like, these are things that people in leadership positions really can tune into, pay attention to, that how important it is to, to recognize the connections and even think creatively, like, it may not always feel automatic, I think, sometimes of like, how can an industry rate necessarily impact sort of the way the police are responding, but maybe like there is an aspect of corporate social responsibility, maybe there are ways and like, if we think about it a little bit more, sometimes like there are the all like, to, but I think since we kind of get stuck in like, well, we just do this, and it's just this, and if we just fit into this box, without sort of expanding different ways of looking. So I love how you kind of really expand sort of the, the thought process and the explanation and and just the, the focus on how much um, you, you've shared about um, like this, this crisis piece too, of not kind of getting stuck in like this crisis mode. We have to look at it like this consistent sustainability. How do we continue this work? Um, and so if I, one more thing, I know in your book, so I know you kind of addressed this already, but you, you wrote about, and so I'm gonna be in quotes, I'm quoting, Hollywood's commitment to diversity has moved beyond crisis response to understanding the crisis is persistent. Is there anything more, and we talked about that already, is there anything else you want to share related to that that we haven't touched on? Yes, so with Hollywood, I will have to start with Dr. Jack Shaheen, who's no longer with us. He wrote a book called Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People. And he looks at movies that were made by Hollywood uh, that represent Arabs and Arabs and Muslims were represented as one and the same for a long time. That's finally changing. We're starting to expand our, our understanding that Muslims are a very diverse group of people. You could be from any background, but for a long time, it was Arab Muslim as one and the same. He looked at movies from the 19, early 1900s until 2000 for a hundred years of cinema. And uh, he said that out of a thousand movies that he watched, 
52 were even-handed and 12 were positive. So we have inherited, wow. and that's just until 2000. Yeah. So there are more movies and there are TV shows and there are news yeah. reporting that's not even a part of that. Yeah. Um, I do have another statistic to add. Uh, the University of Alabama did a study about news reporting mm -hmm. and it showed that when a Muslim commits an act of violence, it is reported on 357% times more than if a white person commits an act of violence. So there's this oh. over-representation of Muslims as violent, as weird, as right. non-American, as you know, having all being undesirable in many right, different right. ways. So when we think about a media system and over a hundred years of messaging, yeah, I'm glad that Hollywood was inspired by Trump in 2015, and we are seeing some changes right now. Right, right now, there is uh, Rami on Hulu, Mo on Netflix, We Are Lady Parts on um, Peacock, mm -hmm. uh, sort of, which is about a transgender uh, Muslim character uh, in Canada on HBO Max. Uh, we have um, Ms. Marvel on Disney Plus. Right. And so these shows are opening, they're innovative, they're showing us a, a new path. So thank you, Hollywood, for finally seeing that we can have stories about Muslims outside of the context of terrorism. Yeah. But Muslim ban is not the problem. It was the galvanizing moment. Hollywood right. has created a problem. And the yeah. problem is not just representations, but it influences how we see other people, our public policy, our public opinion. And a colleague of mine at UC Santa Barbara, Muniba Salim, did a study that shows that when we consume repeated images of Muslims as violent, we're more likely to support domestic policies that restrict their civil liberties and foreign policies, such as war in Muslim-majority countries. So the effect of the media representations is yes. devastating on Muslim life. So I think Hollywood should be thinking about what is this history that we have, the, our history of representations and how much damage we've done and yeah. how can we start to repair that damage? Not the damage yeah. of Donald Trump's Muslim ban, but the damage of your own system of representations yeah. over the last hundred, with so many communities, not just Muslims. And they are yes. starting to do some of that work. Yes. We'll, we'll see where it ends up. Right. Yes. And I think, right, that even leads to like how allies and leadership, right, this idea of just even looking back and checking their own, like how might these biases be showing up from their own, right, like from the media they've been consuming their whole life, right, right? that this is there, what is, is there things that are showing up in there? Um, even just when you were kind of talking about these things, so the, the positive ones, um, it made me think my my kids love the show Mira Royal Detective when they did love the Mira. Eid. Yes. And they did the Eid show, like the um the Eid episode. And that was so big that they were able to like see the representation on a Disney show that yes. like reflected, right? Like the holiday that they celebrate. And that I, I was so grateful that there was something available for their time. It made me tear up when I yeah. saw that song. They're singing, they're celebrating yes. Ramadan and the Eid. It, yes. made, me, it made me tear up because yes. it's so unusual to see something like that. Yes, yes. So if you could give listeners one reflection or action step or recommendation to move this work forward, what would it be? So I think that we all have a lot to learn. So again, just because I'm an yes. expert in the field in the, in the communities that I am, we all have a lot to learn. And so I think the first step is just getting informed. There's so much, you know, even in my own, own family and in my environment, I, you just hear people 
say things like, oh, Black Lives Matter means white lives don't matter. Uh, or, you know, like transgender identity is not possible. Or Muslims really are fanatical and don't belong in America. You, you just hear these kinds of statements that are deeply misinformed. Right. And so I do think that the one simple thing everyone can do is to pick one community and just become more informed on it. Just so that when you're in conversation with your neighbor, your coworker, your family, you're not contributing to um, all of the assumptions and stereotypes that are out there about people and perpetuating it. So you can try to steer it in a different direction. And I think, you know, listening to your podcast and you've had so many amazing people on your podcast, just even listening to this podcast and getting more informed about communities right now, you know, since George Floyd, I mean, there, there are authors in ethnic studies that are now household names, Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi, you know, used to be like niche ethnic studies scholars and now they're public, you know, everyone knows their name. And there are all these lists online, 10 books to read about anti-racism, 10 books to, so it's easier also now to find yes. these lists and to get information. So I feel like one, one thing everyone can do is just to make that effort to try to, let me learn about, you know, if you have something in your mind, like why... Um, you know, why are, uh, why is Black Lives Matter saying defund the police? That sounds ridiculous. Well, just go and read about it. What, right. what, what are they saying? And even if you disagree with it, it's fine, right. but just go and read why someone would say that. Yes. I love that so much of, right, this education piece of, right, how the difference of just coming to it from an open mind mm -hmm. and getting to understand like, okay, what, learning about another community or learning a di different perspective, how that can just change. Even what you're saying, like, even if you don't agree, but understand why people do have that perspective and what it yes. means and where it's coming from. And so, yes. it, yeah, I, I, I love that you're saying that as an action step. And I hope listeners will do that and follow up. And if they do, I hope they reach out to us and share how they're doing that as well. Yes. Um, before we finish today, is there anything else that you would like to tell listeners before we finish? I think that's it on my end. That's awesome. Yes. And then how can they connect with you, support your work, all of that, all the things to connect with you? So to learn more about me, visit my website at evelynalsultani.com. And if you're interested in my book, it can be purchased at amazon.com or NYU Press or other booksellers. Awesome. And we'll have all the links in the show notes so people can easily find that. Thank you so, so much for your time, your expertise, and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's so important. Thank you. Same to you, Rory. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Evelyn. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I would love to hear your thoughts, your questions, any aha moments. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know your thoughts. Um, if there's questions, I'd love to answer them. So please reach out. Feel free also, if you are interested in developing your leadership, let's connect. Um, there, in the show notes, you can find a link to schedule a consult if you are interested in doing coaching or developing leadership for you or others in your workplace. Reach out and I would love to connect with you and see if I can be of support. All right. Have a great day and can't wait for you to hear the next episode. Take care.